job. Great job, Eli. You guys, and kids can head to their classrooms. Well, last week, Pastor Alex uh, gave us a look at the lengths that God went to to make us one. And he used that word atonement, to be at one with God. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross paved the way, but it did not fully complete this process of unity with God because Jesus' death, as profound as it was, would have been utterly meaningless without what happens next. So it's been a few years since I've had the privilege of preaching an Easter Sunday message. So we're going to treat this a little bit like Easter Sunday 2.0, okay? So let's do this. Christ is risen. He is risen. Ah, it's like we're back in April, except there's more people here. It's beautiful. <laughs> And I do like to think, I know it's Thanksgiving this weekend, but actually I think it's quite fitting to have kind of an Easter 2.0 type service on Thanksgiving weekend, because what else can Christ followers celebrate and be thankful more than for the gifts that we have of new life in Jesus? Amen? So let's pause and pray now before we read uh, our scripture reading for this morning. Lord, would you open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, that we may hear with joy what you say to us today. Amen. Amen. So we're going to be in Luke chapter 24, starting at verse 1. And in our reading, we're going to be omitting uh, the story of the two men on the road to Emmaus, uh, as we're primarily dealing with the discovery of the empty tomb and then Jesus' interactions with his disciples. So Luke 24, verse 1. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the woman took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. When they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the woman bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, what, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee? The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the woman, because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. Now we're going to skip to verse 36, after the road to Emmaus, where they're kind of chatting about what just, what, what just occurred. While they were still talking about this, Jesus stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. And he said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts rise in your minds? 
Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it, uh, well, they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it in their presence. This is the word of the Lord. It would be underselling it to say that the Christ event that took place approximately 33 AD, that's kind of wild to think about. That's 1989 years ago. We're 11 years away from roughly the 2000 year mark of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Hard to believe. The Christ event that took place, it would be underselling it to state that it has changed the cultural landscape. It's not even really up for debate. Um, While humanists and atheists and those who ascribe to other faith traditions might take exception to the reality or the veracity of the resurrection, it's clear that something more than just a first century Jewish man in his early 30s died a Roman execution. Christian thinker Andy Crouch, he appropriately compares this to one of Jesus's parables, the parable of the mustard seed, this tiny, seemingly inconsequential moment, a blip on the map in terms of the the breadth of human history. It grew into a movement beyond what what anyone could have fathomed. Andy Crouch says this. He says, on Easter Monday... Nothing had measurably changed in the surrounding culture at all in any way. 100 years later, reports of an obscure sect began to show up in the, in the memos of minor Roman functionaries, but that's about it. And yet, by 350 AD, perhaps half the Roman Empire are Christians. That is not an impact. That is what Jesus describes as a mustard seed, starting off all but invisible, yet eventually growing into a tree where the birds can nest. It's hard to quantify this, but suffice to say, whatever one's view is of Jesus and the scriptures are, something deeply significant happened that day. Christians have pointed to that event as a physical, that is, bodily resurrection. That has and continues to be the orthodox Christian view, that this, and this is why we read about it in the creed, not just about the resurrection of Jesus, but then the resurrection to come. Skeptical as they were initially, the apostles became eyewitnesses to the risen Christ. They and several hundred other people saw with their own eyes a man who had been brutally executed, who now stood among them. My hope this morning is not to convince skeptics to believe in an event that defies logic and what we know about the ordered world. For Christians too, this is an act of faith. If you're tuning in this morning and you would put yourself in that skeptic category, I'm not sure that anything I personally say could convince you. For Christians, resurrection is a reality. Resurrection is the water that we swim in. It's the air that we breathe. Not that we take it lightly or something that we necessarily believe naturally or easily, but it is a reality. 
Over the years, many have tried to suggest that Jesus was not in fact raised bodily, but rather it was an apparition or a ghost of sorts, or a hallucination, or that the writings were metaphorical or symbolic. And I don't believe that the trajectory of the New Testament writings can give us that option. But rather than focusing on apologetics this morning, I'd like to presuppose, if you can kind of suspend, if you are in a state of disbelief, suspend that disbelief for a moment and presuppose that these accounts are in fact true. That the gospels, according to Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, that though they all had slightly different takes on what occurred, that what happened really did happen. Let's focus today, though, specifically, we're going to zero in on this Lucan account. So Luke, we often read this text at the at kind of Christmas time, but Luke, at the very beginning of his two-part account that we call Luke Acts, he wrote both of those books, he was commissioned, he says he was commissioned by this guy Theophilus to write an orderly account of all that took place regarding Jesus. And at the very end of this first book, Luke 24, we're left with quite an ending. The body of Jesus, who was crucified and laid in a tomb, has disappeared. Now, some women um, revealed to be later on to be Mary Magdalene, a woman named Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and some other women, they go to tend to the body of Jesus with some spices that they had prepared. But they get there and they realize the stone has been rolled away. Now, this would have been deeply Worrying, obviously. No one could have easily done this. I mean, just look, there's a picture here. Um, take a look at that rock. These things were massive. Certainly not movable by these women, nor by some rogue disciple or centurion. These things weighed literally tons. They needed like mechanisms to move them back in place. But two angels of the Lord appeared to these women and the angels of the Lord said, he is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee that the son of man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Our preaching team, as we were reading this text, we kind of noted that this, um, the phrasing of the angels, the way they're talking, it almost sounds kind of creedal in its cadence and, co and content. That the angels were reciting a truth that Jesus had told his followers, that amid their grief, they had kind of forgotten this truth. I think we can infer something from that as well for our own lives. That in times of grief and confusion and doubt, reciting truths that we know, a creed in this case, might center us and it might help us remember the truth of, of who God is and the truth and hope that we have in Christ. Because the moment they heard it, the moment they reheard those truths, they remembered Jesus' words, and their doubt was replaced with renewed faith and belief. This is something that we see in lots of other disciplines. Um, I, when I went to, I started therapy a number of years ago, and one of the first things my therapist had me do was she was like, okay, I want you to write out a list, because I was pretty down on myself in that season, and she said, I want you to write out a list of 10 things that you like about yourself. 
And I was like, well, that seems, that seems a little like, you know, self-inflating, you know, but she's like, no, no, you, you think you're garbage right now. So write a, write a list of 10 things that you're good at. And she said, I want you to have that accessible, like whether it's in your pocket or like on a document on your phone that whenever you are despairing, you pull that out and you read it. And I was like, that's, that's stupid, you know, <laughs> but I did it and it worked like in, in a healthy, good way. It was like, you know what, when I'm despairing, I pull it out and I'm like, oh man, Okay, I'm okay. Everything's fine. And I think there's something similar kind of happening here for uh, these women. They hear this truth and they're like, I had forgotten about that. Right. (laughs) So the women then rush off to tell the disciples. And what happens in verse 11? They did not believe the woman because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Classic. If there's anything that the scriptures have taught us and anything that recent history has proven, it's that we should believe women, right? Yes. Yes. (laughs) And then Peter, and this is like classic Peter. He's our favorite disciple to pick on. He doesn't do himself any favors here. So he hears this account from the women and he runs to investigate things by himself and he sees what the women saw, an empty tomb. And it says, he went away wondering to himself what happened. Peter. Like, okay, I'm just gonna like say that I am probably a little bit like Peter. Like, I think Peter's a little thick in the head. I can be a little thick in the head. So I can empathize. But like, Peter, bro, like, just maybe maybe consider that what the woman said was true. So then they have this encounter later on, the disciples with the men on the road to Emmaus. They seem to take what the men said a little bit more seriously. (laughs) Again, I'm not going to be detailing all of that, but the connection to these two men in this narrative is that they share with the disciples what they had seen and experienced. They had seen Jesus. They had been with Jesus. And so now we pick it up at verse 36. It says, while they were still talking with Jesus, sorry, while they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. So he finally reveals himself. He proved to them that he's not an apparition. He's not a ghost. He shows them his hands and his feet. And still, they don't believe. But note the very interesting spin that Luke puts on it here. We often have this picture of Jesus sort of wagging his finger and chastising, you know, all the doubting Thomases among them, that their hearts were hard to the truth of the resurrection, that their hope was gone. But here Luke says that they still did not believe it. Why? Because of joy and amazement. Almost like this giddy, wondrous disbelief. And not the kind of disbelief of your baseball team blowing a seven-run lead and just collapsing, and I'm still very much not okay today. Not that kind of disbelief. I kind of imagine it more like someone who has won the lottery, and they're obsessively looking at the numbers on their screen and looking back at their ticket and realizing, oh my, I can't believe it. I've won. You know, it's, it's that kind of disbelief. They just can't truly take it in. And then, of course, like any good reunion, where they finally realize who it is and they enjoy some good food together. Jesus' body, having truly been raised to life, it hungered for food. 
There's also something very striking about the fact that Jesus's body was not restored completely the way that we might have imagined. You know, he, his scars still remained. He still hungers. Perhaps in the new creation, we might still carry the remnants of our emotional and our physical scars and yet find them redeemed in some way. I'm still processing that. There's still kind of a lot of thinking and praying to be done about that, but that's just something interesting that came up for me. There's something incredibly beautiful and profound about this passage. Of course, the fact that Jesus is alive is the primary reason, but there's something remarkable about the faith of the women contrasted with the disbelief of the men and the gentle, patient presence of Jesus and the renewed bonding over some broiled fish. (laughs) When I read this passage, I am filled with hope. A few different kinds of hope, really. I I want to say today that because of the resurrection, we have three kinds of hope. Maybe more, but these are the ones I thought of. An embodied hope, a spiritual hope, and a future hope. And those all kind of weave together a little bit, but I think that they're distinct in their own ways. Firstly, we experience an embodied hope because Jesus was physically, bodily raised. I'll never forget my surprise when I came across um, something called the Christ myth theory. It was kind of theorized about 100 years ago, maybe a little earlier than that, but it still persists to this day. And basically the idea is that they believe that Jesus was likely not a historical figure, but rather he was a composite of various gods from the ancient Near East and you know, ancient Babel- Babylon and all that kind of stuff. And you know, this has been thoroughly, thoroughly debunked by both Christian and secular scholars alike, but the fruit of it still remains in a way. Seeds of doubt planted around the historicity of Jesus, especially with respect to the resurrection. It makes sense. Resurrection bucks against our modernist tendencies and sensibilities. Even some who claim Christ have fallen prey to the theory that Jesus was not truly bodily raised, at least not in the literal sense. However, Luke does not really leave us with that option. His authorial intent was to prove the details of what occurred. Though he himself was not eyewitness to Jesus himself, he meticulously interviewed direct eyewitnesses and was able to construct this compelling timeline and narrative. Luke's claim of Jesus' full bodily resurrection doesn't really leave us room for alternative interpretations. It's either true or it's not. I do confess that I grow a little weary of kind of modern day apologetics, but I do think that this is a worthy endeavor to examine these passages closely, to seek God, because the truth of Jesus's resurrection matters deeply, and it is why it appears so prominently in the Apostles' Creed. But when I say that this passage gives us an embodied hope, I mean far more than simply just mentally assenting to the truth of an event. Jesus' bodily resurrection gives me great hope for the physical needs of the world around us. You know, the past few years, it has certainly felt like there has been a lot of death 
and deterioration and destruction in the world around us and even here close to home at Courtright. I've been grieved as I receive, you know, um, emails from our prayer chain that one of our elders, Krisha, so um, faithfully sends out as people send in prayer requests. And, you know, things like detailing sickness and death among those in our church or family of those in our church. And all of this loss can make us feel hopeless and overwhelmed. I need an embodied resurrection because we live in an embodied world. Our flesh and bones matter to Jesus, even as our bodies decay. Jesus' resurrection from the dead gives me hope that one day there will be a new heaven and a new earth, one without sickness and pain, without sorrow and grief. You know, one thing that I haven't really ever talked about too much publicly is that I've had this ever-evolving battle with chronic pain. Um, and it, I can usually, you know, ignore it most of the time. But when I was 13, I fractured two of my lower vertebrae. I won't tell you how because you'll just laugh at me. Um, <laughs> okay, fine. I was at a concert and I was crowd surfing and I got dropped like that. Yeah, flat on my back, thought I was okay. And then I, you know, tried to go snowboarding a few months later, ended up in the hospital. They did a bone scan. Anyway, <laughs> it was a whole thing. And my parents, uh, I was already a bit of an accident prone child. And so this just, my parents tried to bubble wrap me after that. It didn't work so well, but anyway, it's been a constant up and, up and down battle ever since that. And it, now it's, you know, kind of just constant back pain, leg pain, hip pain, most days, thanks to treatment, etc., it's fine. You know, I I'm, I'm feel just fine today. But other days, it can be quite debilitating. I'm putting my hope in God, and I am trusting that the resurrected Jesus can renew and revive my body and yours, either in this age or the age to come. I am yearning for that day in a very real way. What does embodied hope look like for you? Perhaps the reunion with a loved one who has passed on, maybe the hope of no more pain or cancer, maybe the promise of an end to suffering. I start with embodied hope because I have found that Christians tend to forget that resurrection doesn't only have cosmic spiritual implications, but implications for our physical realities. That doesn't mean that everything will be made well and right on this side of heaven, but it certainly means that we will see glimmers of what is to come, a foretaste of what's to come. You know, we see God's miraculous healing of people. We see new innovations and ways to help people with their illnesses. There are amazing ways and, and way, ways that we can, you know, think about solving the problems of the world, like hunger and homelessness. All of these things give us a little taste of heaven on earth, the inbreaking of God's kingdom. But we're not just physical bodies. 
but spiritual beings as well. Jesus is certainly concerned about our physical selves. After all, his feeding of the 5,000 and his healing of the sick and the infirm were not only just signs of the kingdom, they were that, but they also met very real, tangible, physical need. But Jesus is also concerned with our spiritual selves. Both in the Torah and in the words of Jesus, they both say, they call us, they invite us to love the Lord with all of our hearts, all of our soul, all of our mind, and all of our strength. Our ability to do that or not do that is what makes us God's image-bearing creation. It gives us our sentience, our consciousness. It's what separates us from horses and fish, as cool as they are. (laughs) But our spiritual selves are fractured because of sin, the ways that we've missed the mark, the ways in which we harm ourselves, one another, and the ways in which we separate ourselves from God. Jesus carried the weight of sin fully on the cross. And he proved himself truly victorious over that sin through resurrection. It is our spiritual selves that fight against God. And we are in desperate need of a renewal of our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. And, though G- and through Jesus' resurrection, we too are given new life in Christ. In Paul's letter to the Roman church, he uses the analogy of baptism, that it showcases a death, that when someone is submerged in the water, it is like a death. They go into the tomb to be buried. But as they are raised, it is a raising of new life. In Romans 6, 4, he says, Just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. We are people of new life. We are people of new beginnings. We are people of second chances. In the book of Isaiah, he puts it in a different way. The prophet writes this in chapter 43, verses 18 and 19. He says, forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you you not perceive it? I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. God is in the business of newness, making a way where there was no way, breathing life into dead, dry bones, creating streams in wastelands. Tangibly speaking, though, what does this actually look like? We've often used a phrase at Easter from a famous poem by Wendell Berry, and the phrase is, practice resurrection. Practice resurrection. But how exactly do we do that? I think we need to first and foremost remind ourselves that resurrection is something that happened, something that was done so that Christ can claim victory over sin and death. When Jesus raised his friend Lazarus to to life, he declared these words. He said, I am the resurrection. 
Resurrection is not simply a thing that Jesus does. It is who he is. So when we rightly see that this is something that has been done and something that is just part and parcel of who Christ is, all we need to really do is align with it. Align with resurrection. It's not something that we strive for. It's not something that we try harder to do. I gotta try harder to, to live out a resurrection life this week. That's not what it's about. It's about aligning with Jesus who says, I am the resurrection. And yet there is something for us to practice. In the same way that God called Adam and Eve to cultivate the already created land in the Garden of Eden, we can be cultivators of resurrection. We can notice resurrection. We can celebrate resurrection. And this brings me to um, a very fitting practice for the week. We've had a practice each week, and this week's practice is a very simple one and very fitting for Thanksgiving weekend. It's gratitude. Gratitude. Make a point to notice the new life around you this week. Be mindful of resurrection. Maybe it's time to get a little bit more intentional about it, though. Maybe it's at the beginning of your day, writing three things, three or four things that you have seen or noticed. Maybe it was for a good night's sleep, or maybe your kids slept through the night, or whatever. Um, and then maybe toward the end of the day, do the same thing. Reflect on the day that happened. Celebrate the beauty and the goodness around you and thank God for them. To be clear, to be people of the resurrection means more than simply being grateful and noticing, but I think it's a really beautiful starting point. The logical end of resurrection will look like life springing up wherever Christians are present. That might mean meal trains for the sick or grieving, blankets for youth leaving home to go to university, giving away thousands of pounds of garden-grown food to those who need it, the very kinds of things that we are doing. But it also looks like Jesus' words early on in his ministry as he opens the scrolls to Isaiah and he reads this in Luke 4. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus gives us a picture that marries both spiritual and physical resurrection for the marginalized to be made free, for the homeless to be housed, for the addicted to be released of their addiction, for justice to reign. Resurrection looks like the year of the Lord's favor, which is jubilee, which is the absolution of debts, the erasing of debts. It's freedom. If it doesn't look like freedom for the downtrodden, for the left out, for the least of these, it's not resurrection. Like many parts of Canada, Guelph continues to face a lot of challenges for those experiencing housing insecurity. And I've been having a number of conversations with people over the past little while um, to see if there's something, if anything, that Courtright can do to be a part of that conversation. Why? Why would I do that? Because I want to be a person and I want us to be a church of resurrection and new life. 
Now that's an issue that's massive in scope and far beyond one person or church, but if we all do our part to practice resurrection, it becomes this beautiful division of labor. So we align with resurrection by using our gifts to breathe new life in the way that Jesus breathed new life in us, by using our resources, by aligning our time and our money with resurrection endeavors. How might you do that this week or in the weeks ahead? What are some ways that you are already doing that? What are some ways that maybe you could be doing something else or something different or something more? And it's not always about more. Sometimes it's about saying, am I doing the right thing with my time? We only have so much time in our week. Now more than ever, we need a resurrection. We need the hope and the new life that Jesus offers us. And we also need that future hope that the resurrection offers. I don't know where you're at this morning, what you bring as you came in the door, what burdens are weighing you down or whether you're experiencing joy or sadness, gratitude or cynicism, whether you're energized or perhaps burnt out a little bit. This morning, Jesus invites us into true life, abundant life, resurrection life. So if something is not working out like you had planned, if something isn't taking off like you had hoped it would of a career path, schooling, etc. If maybe all is not well in your soul, if you're experiencing the weight of the frailty of life, if you're losing hope for the future, I want you to hear these words from Jesus. This is from Matthew chapter 11 from the message. Jesus says, are you tired, worn out, burnt out on religion? Come to me, get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. So this morning, may you rest in the finished work of the resurrection and experience that embodied hope, that spiritual hope and hope for the future as well. Let's pray. God, at various points in our journey, we all need hope. We all need to know and experience the resurrection life. I pray that wherever we come from this morning, whatever we bring to the table this morning, God, would you meet us there? Would you speak those words of comfort over us if we are grieving and hurting? Would you breathe new life into us where we are feeling dead and decaying? Would you give us a hope beyond what is humanly possible 
thanks to your wonderful gift of resurrection that we remember and proclaim today. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.